0: You're listening to FunShack, episode 5. Hafen Capital Management is one of Europe's leading asset management firms. It was an early mover in the private credit space, a market which has since grown in leaps and bounds. Since being founded in 2009, Hafen has extended more than €17 billion in loans to more than 300 portfolio companies. It has an international team of more than 130 professionals working across its London headquarters, as well as Frankfurt, Madrid, Luxembourg, Milan, New York and Tel Aviv. Its strategies include direct lending, special opportunities, high-yield credit, and syndicated loans, as well as structured credit and a private equity fund strategy. Today, I'm talking with its founder and chief executive officer, Tim Flynn. Hello, Tim, and welcome to Fun Shack. Yeah, thank you, Ross. Pleasure to be here. So, private credit was probably always around in some shape or form, but really since the global financial crisis and the ensuing regulation, it's emerged as a major component of the capital markets and you were there at the beginning i wonder if we could go back to 2009 and and tell us what you were thinking and what it was like
1: yeah happy to well private credit it's a new word but it's an old concept you're right it's been around for a long time but just to let let me just start by taking you further back actually if we go back um let's go back to like the early 2000s um you know credit in those days Um, was, you know, it was a couple things, but it was really, it was dominated by banks, right? There was a very small high yield market that really took off in 1998 with the advent of the euro, but very small. I'm talking tens of billions of issuance a year. And then in the early 2000s, the first start of an institutional loan market took hold. And it was really, is driven by CLOs. Okay. So who would, you know, these vehicles would buy loans, and then securitize them into the structured credit markets. And
0: what was the impetus for that? Was it someone's innovation, or was there a regulatory change? It wasn't a regular.
1: It was, it was innovation. It was just using the securitization technique and the ratings arbitrage to bring investment-grade buyers, bond buyers, into the higher-rated per- portions of these securitized loans. And I, the real drivers were investment banks like mine at Goldman Sachs, where you know, in 2002, if you were going to you know, originate and syndicate a bank loan, it was a months-long process more than months because you had to bring in other commercial banks into the loan. It happened very slowly, very time consuming, and it wasn't very lucrative because you gave as an investment bank or underwriting bank, you gave up fees uh, to the other banks. So the innovation was let's sell those loans rather than to other banks to the capital markets by securitizing. Yeah. So that that really took hold. I had to go back and look at it. it was probably 2003, 4, 5, that kind of really took off in Europe. And then so you started having an institutional loan market or private credit market, let's call it that, grow. And then in you know 2008, two things happened. One is you mentioned the global financial crisis. That's actually the less important driver. Hmm. Uh, but what that did is it took out the securitized credit buyers. They just got wiped out in subprime mortgages, You know other kinds of products, same buyers, triple A buyers and loans were the same in subprime mortgages or whatever. So that market imploded. And the machine stopped. Uh, And that actually happened before, you know, most people think of the, I think of the financial crisis as really triggered by Lehman or something. That's kind of the time frame. that started happening the year before, actually, when losses were starting to become visible in those portfolios. So the CLO machine stopped. So that was, you know, that was part of it. The much more important part was a change, I think it was Jan 1, 08, from Basel 1 to Basel 2. And so completely unrelated, you know, but in hindsight, very significant things happened. And, you know, Basel I to Basel II, all that did was change the capital requirements that banks had to put against uh, high-yield loans. Mm. And it made it more expensive. So before 2008, institutions like mine couldn't compete with the cost of capital of banks because they were, you know, 10 times, 15 times levered and setting very little capital against uh, the high yield loans. So loans priced at you know, like
0: 250 over LIBOR, with very, you know, very few, very little fees on the front. So if the financial crisis hadn't happened, but Basel II had happened?
1: Yeah, same thing, but slower. Right. Same thing, same thing. Would have happened more slowly. Right. Uh, but you know, that's the much more important part of, the, part of the driver. So it's just been a, re- and basically, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense you know this is the most risky end of lending you know banks government backed deposit you know takers you know i think there's a move from the regulator and of course i wasn't part of this so i'm surmising from the outside but there's a move from the regulator um, to drive a portion not all of it but to drive make it more expensive i guess for banks you know to hold these types of assets on their balance sheets mm. which had the impact you know of driving of creating you know the market really that we've been part of leading which is the market where instead of banks providing the loans, Hmm. you know, it's pension
0: funds or insurance companies or whatever, intermediated by asset management firms like mine. Can I just push you on this alternative history because I find that that fascinating. If uh, So it sounds like the regulators could see that there were issues. If they'd implemented Basel II... A long time before the financial crisis, would that have ameliorated the effects of the financial crisis?
1: Well, I don't really think the leveraged loan part of the market, you know, was the big oh, no, yeah, The answer right. to your question. Yes, yeah, so was a yeah. small part of it. So probably yeah. not.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah. OK, great. So, and and so, so you're sitting there in 2009 you're, and you're seeing these these shifts in the regulatory landscape. But you're also obviously seeing uh, the market shifts. And, so what okay. do you think you So I'm at Goldman Sachs. Yeah.
1: Okay. And, um, you know, just by way of background, Goldman Sachs was a long way from, you know, where and how I grew up. I'm from middle of nowhere, Arizona. Wall Street was a very long way away. Goldman was kind of my dream. I saw Goldman, you know, as a, as a teenager, early 20s or something, man, as a path, um, you know, out of dusty Arizona um, and into financial security or, you know, whatever it was. I interviewed like three or four times before I got a job. I got rejected year after year. I finally got a job in the end of the 90s. Um, or mid-90s, I guess. So I'm at Goldman. Um, you know, didn't quite fit the mold of a Goldman banker, I I I, I would say. I absolutely loved it there. Um, it's a fascinating place. Um, you know, in fact, I remember when I got there, I was intimidated and then mesmerized by how the place worked. Because, you know, I had a commitment to hiring top people in every seat. No one seemed to own their own seat. You know, you kind of competed out of your seat, you know, if you mm-hmm. didn't keep up. Um, you know, the best people were the ones who hired people who were smarter, more driven, even better than they were. And they kind of challenged them. And it was, a, it was, a, it was an organization that's really committed, in my opinion, to kind of innovation and creativity and trying to see around corners. So I'm in that mix, um, you know, loving it, frankly. Mm. And I start seeing this happen. This is before Lehman. Mm. Okay. But I'm starting to see the CLO machine come to a stop. I'm thinking about the impacts of Basel, uh, too. And you know, it was—I don't want to overstate my foresight because I didn't see Lehman, or you know, I didn't see any of that happening. But it was clear to me in my little corner of the market, the leverage finance market, we were on the cusp of a paradigm shift about how credit would be provided to corporate, non-investment grade corporate Europe, Europe. And as I'm as I'm looking at that. Um, you know, thinking about how, you know, we could adopt and weave at at Goldman. And my first thought was, you know, to try to, you know, to try to really figure out how to go after this, you know, within the context of the bank I loved working at. Um, And then when I saw there wasn't a path to do that, I left. So I left in, by the time I I think I got out of the bank, it was probably early, I can't remember exactly, early 08, um, maybe spring 08. And we started to think about how to put, I started to think about how to put together an independent firm that could go after this. And the context there, you know, is a little bit different. I you know, I was acutely aware, you know, having been a partner at Goldman, the world didn't need a new way to pay bankers more money. Okay? <laughs> world didn't need another hedge fund. Hmm. It's brain damagingly difficult to start one of these things. Hmm. I didn't want to take it on just for, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, ego or or, or or money. What was really interesting to me and the other early founders, I think, of, of Hafen is that we could do something really different. We could, you know, create a different type of institution and kind of enduring firm in Europe that we thought we could create the kind of homegrown market leader, the one that would be among the first to see around this particular corner. And then to try to set ourselves up that we could continue to see around corners best we can, as anybody can in financial markets. And that's what we created. That's why we're here. We're 10 years into, you know, a 30, 40 year journey. Um, And, um, you know, the idea you know, to create the market
0: champion, the local market champion. So I, th- I, th- I think you're right. It is a huge deal to set out to do this. And it's easy yeah. to look back 10 years on with the great success and think, well, that was an obvious thing to do. But back then, it must have felt like a real risk. And you're saying that the re- I think what you're saying is the reason you had the confidence to do it is that you saw the opportunity to do something different. Yeah. Can we dissect that? What is so different about Hey, Finn, and also let me tack on a question. Yeah. Why Europe?
1: Yeah. Okay, N- number of questions in there, but, but, but for, let me go back to one thing that you said, which is <laughs> very, very true. And anybody, um, any entrepreneur, doesn't matter if it's in financial services or I- anything, you yourself and your business, it's incredibly difficult to set a business up. It is. Yeah. And failure is around every corner. Hmm. So I won't give you the whole song and dance, but let me just assure you, that when we started, when I started putting this together in mid 2008, um, we, you know, nearly failed, you know, 99 times. I mean, it's it's a small miracle that we're even here. I won't give you the whole story unless you really want it. But, you know, at every step of the way, uh, it was a bit like interviewing for Goldman in the 90s. You know, I'd love to hear it
0: at some point, actually. Okay. But keep going. <laughs> okay.
1: So, so yeah, we're very, very fortunate to be here. You know, yeah. some of it's hard work. A lot of it's just, frankly, luck and timing. Okay. Mm. But we're here. Mm. And with all of that hard work and having humility around the luck and not wanting, you know, to waste it, um, you know, the idea that we had is um, – well, the idea that we had is that we could create – I think I said it before – an institution that would endure, that would outlast us, that would be set up for continued success um, in these markets. And the way that we thought about it um, was – I guess, I guess there were – There are two parts to it. The first, from an investment strategy perspective. The kind of fundamental thing that we said to ourselves is we observed that a lot of firms set their strategies. And then they hope that markets adjust to their strategy. We looked at it and said, well, what if we look at it differently? Why don't we try to be students of markets? You know, know, um, dispassionate you know, carefully observing students of markets and adjust our strategies to fit markets. You know, at the time, we called it the Spanish mezzanine problem. Like if you have a business that can only do Spanish mezzanine, Mm. that's great for a while. But then markets are markets and your advantages get competed out. Market dynamics change and you do Mm. Spanish mezzanine over the cleft edge.
0: So you're opportunists more than...
1: Yeah, opportunistic is a loaded term, I guess, but I think that's fair. Okay. So we said we, we – we, we I would say we're students. <laughs> yes. I would say we're students with broad mandates yeah. that we fought hard to get so that we could say, you know, for example, in our direct lending business, um, you know, we like to finance performing assets in companies. Where, uh, But it doesn't matter whether it's a buyout, an airplane, a building, a credit card pool, IP, you know, we're not going to be – or it doesn't matter if it's the, you know, UK or Ireland or Spain or Italy – it doesn't matter whether we originated ourselves or we buy it from a bank. We are going to think about our product as a risk-return equation that we deliver to our investors. Mm. And whatever comes in the front end of the sausage factory, we're pretty indifferent to as long as
0: we understand it. And for whatever reason, the incumbent competition, such as it was, had chosen the other route. They'd yeah. chosen to specialize in Spanish mezzanine or whatever That's it is. That's it. And see, now you asked why Europe. And the reason, first of all, why Europe is, we're European. Actually,
1: I'm American, as you can tell by my accent. Moved here 23 years ago, followed a girl. Mixed success, um, you know, on that part of it. But I'm here, my whole career has been here. You know, Hafen's a European firm. And so why Europe is because we're European. But also, our observation was with probably one exception, you know, our competitors or the landscape was dominated by Americans with satellite offices. Nothing wrong with Americans. But like all of us, we take our own baggage with us when we go to new places. And the Americans largely set up investment strategies that fit the US, but not Europe. And the classic mistake, in my opinion, was too narrowly focused. The US private credit market or leveraged finance market is incre- you know, it's so deep, it's, it's vast. Mm-hmm. You know, The banks disappeared really as material players in the 90s after the sales, uh, savings and loans crisis. So you know, they had a 20 year head start. Markets are vast. You could have a very narrowly focused strategy and still have enough to choose from that you could cherry-pick a portfolio. Not the case in Europe. Because you, know, even today, banks just saw a stat yesterday. Nobody really knows the numbers, <clears throat> but I saw a stat that, you, know, this market is probably five trillion. Sorry. yeah, I think it was five trillion, the number I saw. Something like, 10 um, um, you know, percent of that now might be in institutional hands. The other 90% still in bank hands. Now, that counts a lot of stuff that we don't go after, which is very, very small, you know, business loans and, you know, other things, working capital facilities, so it's the big market. But the point is, you know it yourself, from walking down the high street, you know, Europe is very overbanked. Mm. So, you know, with that 800-pound gorilla in your backyard, you know, what's left over for guys like us, you know, is relatively small compared to the U.S. So the most important thing we said, if we want to be successful... And the key advantage we'll have over all of our competitors is that we'll fight early days to say, no, we can't be Spanish mezzanine <laughs> specialists yeah. because there's not enough to choose from. Mm. We need to look at it the other way around from a risk return equation. so and I think that's really been the secret sauce um, it, it, um, you know for us really in Europe, you know there's a firm here called ICG, yep. you know been around for a long time, mm. terrific institution. you know probably you know from my perspective, the other home group well they're bigger. Probably better than we. Are. I mean, they're the you know they're the you know, the kind of pinnacle of the market, so to speak. So, you know, we're not without competition, without great competition. They're certainly you know pretty terrific. But you know, in the U.S., there's 50 of those guys, right? And in, in, in Europe, it's it, it's quite different. And there's you know, s- subsequently, there's been more firms that have emerged and mm. you know that we compete with that are
0: also excellent and probably hopefully you know setting strategies that match Europe as well. So, if you were to have explained your strategy to mm. me in when you set up as yeah. you just did yeah i think i would have said that sounds great but the challenge of not specializing is that is it not that you cover yourself thin and you you have to really resource well in order to understand the markets and understand the products yeah access the deal so yeah. how have you how did you approach that problem
1: well first of i made it very hard to raise money early days okay all, raising money early days is very very hard for all kinds of reasons one first is lack of track record um, you know, coming into this, I'm a high-yield capital markets guy at Goldman Sachs. I mean, I'm basically a salesman, <laughs> was the perception. Now, we a lot of risk management, I was on the capital committee, spent a lot of time, you know, trying to understand risk return. But I did not have, nor did any of my fellow partners, you know, have an exportable track record. Big challenge in yeah. raising money. So the power of the idea had to be very strong. And then this point that you're talking about was really, really important. And we lost a lot of investors early days because what it means is exactly that. People have to underwrite not just what we've done last two, three years, but our ability to shift course, change direction, our ability, um, you know, if we're moving into a market where we have less expertise mm-hmm. or very specialized expertise is required, have to underwrite our ability you know, to hire that team or appoint those consultants or JV with that partner. So for example... For investing in Barcelona real estate NPLs, we might know a lot about real estate. Um, We might have a few Spanish guys. We might even have a Spanish guy who grew up in Barcelona, but it's a very, very local market if we really want to understand value. So we have to partner with a local developer or underwriter or whatever in that business. Shipping, you know, is another example. That was a business that we weren't in at all until it blew up in 2016. The one thing I can tell you from, you know, a near death personal experience when I was at Goldman. Shipping is not for the tourist. You mm. don't want to be an American investment banker in London investing in shipping. It's a recipe to lose money. So we had to partner with real industry people. I, we're, we're, I think we have 25 people you know, in that vertical, a um, bunch of them in, in Copenhagen, some of them here in London, who've been in those markets their whole lives, not just as bankers, but as charterers, you know, as technical and service And they're in-house providers. people now. They're right? in-house people. Well, one's a JV, yeah. um, and the other are in-house people. I think there's 10 in-house people. Um, you know, so there's a real, you know, it's a real challenge, uh, makes it hard to underwrite. I think when people look at the performance now over 10 years, it makes a lot easier to raise money actually, but it's very hard to get here. And, um, it's, you know, it's one of the key risks, I guess, because looked at another way, you call it style drift, (laughs) you know what I mean? Spanish mez isn't Mm. working
0: today, so Mm. you're going to do, you know, you know, something else tomorrow that could be perceived as style drift. But at least, you know, you're doing it. I guess what it sounds like one of your USPs is having... Is precisely the ability to drift but still succeed. I guess it's built-in flexibility. It's built-in
1: flexibility. We're very open about it, and I think one of the huh, I had a mentor a long time ago tell me something really important, which is if you're going off-piste, if you're doing something you've done in the past, haven't done in the past, you know, vis-a-vis your boss, or your investors, or your clients, or you know, whatever, you got to be open about it. It's like skiing in the ops. If you're going off-piste. Tell people you're off peace, raise your hand, you know this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, because you know it's you know it's important that people understand what's happening if something goes wrong, they know where to look for you yeah you know and and if you blow up if you lose money on peace, people are pretty forgiving. if you blow up off peace, it really hurts the franchise, so the reason why internally we try to be really clear with ourselves if we're venturing into territory we haven't been before um we have to be have really high conviction we're going to get it right because the cost of getting it wrong um, is expensive. So these are not things we do. In a, these are shifts that take you know a year or two years you know to plan. They're not. It's not. It's opportunistic. Yes, but we're looking for you know dislocation that norm, Think about shipping or oil and gas or yep. Spanish real. These are you know these are longer dated cycles. So you because didn't start, wake
0: up one morning and think. I remember my experience at Goldman Sachs on shipping. We can do it better. We're going to, what's the, what's the institution, what's the governance process within Hayfin to go off piste in any direction?
1: Well, it really it's driven by our investment. It's the same as our investment process driven by committee. You know, the senior partners around the firm, you know, writing position papers or white papers and, you know, thinking about different angles and, you know, having a counterpoint of view. What could go wrong? What do we know? What don't we know? Yeah. You know, the known unknowns and the unknown, you know, that whole rigmarole. Um, and then we make a very, you know, careful decision just like we would any investment decision. Sure.
0: How did you set up that? What did you base your internal governance on? Was it your experience at Goldman Sachs? Yeah. Or your, yeah.
1: yeah. A lot of the. So I owe a lot to Goldman. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things, you know, there, there are a few key uh, principles, actually, that I feel like, you know, some of which we took from Goldman, some of which we took from other places, and tried to borrow the best from everywhere. But, you know, what did we? What excited us, you know, about setting this up? How were we going to endure, you know, for 30, 40, 50 years, long after, you know, the original founders have gone? And we had a few key principles, some of which we took from Goldman, some of which we we took ourselves but there are a few one of them is have, try to have the top people you know make an unusual effort to recruit retain uh, you know the best people we possibly can in the market and that meant not being afraid to hire people who are better smarter more driven than we are people that might push us out of our own seats right. if we don't if we, if we don't uh, keep up and you know kind of the mentality was you know we don't own our own seats we just look after them for the next generation and want to pass it on um, so that that's been a, a very core principle, you know. We have a philosophy: top people pay them, top of market, reward top performance. People aren't performing at a top level, um, you know. Not be afraid to change course and yeah. and move on. Um, so I think that 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 comes from at least the Goldman culture that I experienced. I yeah. don't know what it's like today. Um, second piece was around collaboration. Okay, this yeah. is very easy to talk about teamwork. Truth is, in finance, most people subscribe to a master of the universe concept. The all-knowing, accountable, uh, wise man. Um, And then, uh, you know, that's a model. Works well for some people. For me, I thought in our markets, where we're making really difficult decisions, um, I thought collaboration, so making decisions collectively, would be the path to better decision-making. Because the truth is, the world's complex. Weird things happen. Mm. Um, I have my bit of experience, um, but there's you know, a lot more that I don't know. Uh, so I thought we would make better investment decisions and strategic decisions if we operate as a team of senior people. Yeah. And there's a big cost to that, right? Because we move more slowly right. than others. We'd be a much bigger firm, <laughs> I think, if we, if we um, you know, operated more command and control. Because you know we miss opportunity, it takes us very long sometimes to make decisions it's frustrating non collaborative people end up getting pushed out or self selecting out because it, you know it's a slow frustrating process, but we make better decisions because a lot of this is just pattern recognition. Mm. more people you have around, more patterns you recognize yeah. and you know the one I just looked at a stat which is um I think you'd reference we've made seventeen billion euros or so of investments yeah. in our space um you know, we've been delivering high teens returns in our distress special situation strategies, high single digit returns um, in our middle market lending strategies um, for ten years, year after year, and we've had total losses in ten years of just over seven million euros. So it's wow. like less than a less than a basis point a year, mm. and that's not. <laughs> you know, you could look at that and say, okay, um, we've been in benign environments. But the truth is, I guess, in a way, that's true, but we've you know fin- we've been through a depression in Spain, mm, you know, mm. once in a generation recession in France, you know, shipping crisis, you know the likes of which i don't I don't know when the last time the world's seen, but you know mm. vast sums of capital destroyed in shipping. Think about the North Sea, oil and gas. I think about you know what's probably around the corner for us in in the u k depending on what happens with brexit. Mm. There's been some tough times. um we've made some horrible investment decisions in hindsight. You know, we made mistakes. Um, Sometimes weird things happen. Mm, mm. Um, So things have gone wrong. Lots of things have gone wrong. You know, hopefully a bit, you know, less than otherwise. But we, you know, have a very low loss rate. And it's not because we're smarter, I don't think, than anybody else. We have a process that encourages and rewards and demands collaboration. So I think we're
0: more careful make better decisions. That's interesting because most people would say, you know, your your default rate, everyone's default rate is really low. But what you're saying... One of the things you're saying is the areas that you've operated in have witnessed distress yeah. in the time that you've operated them, and yeah. still you
1: Yeah, our default rates been low, and in, in the corporate earnings space, the you know the non-cyclical space, mm. you know, we I think we've had 65, 70 restructurings or defaults or liquidations or you know that we've managed through in 10 years. Mm. So a lot of it's because we go look for trouble, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. you know it's not you know it, it's it's not been a benign environment. Yeah, um, we might be going into a more challenging environment. Who knows? You know, but I think we've been battle tested. So I I would say, you know, that that, again, that track record isn't down. It's down to the right strategy, Mm. flexible, you know, some good people and a collaborative model. By the way, the other thing that I would say um, that's really it goes hand in hand with that, Um, you know, diversity. You know, it's a buzzword. Everybody, Mm. you know, wants to, you know, wants to, you know, wants to appropriately, you know, it's something people want to look at. But really in the investment world. It's so, so important. And I'm not just talking about gender, sexual orientation, nationality, all that's really important, but I'm talking about aptitude, skill set, you know, socioeconomic background, way of looking at the world, how do you think you mm-hmm. process-driven, are you creative? Diversity, cognitive diversity, let's call it that, and a collaborative investment model is absolutely essential. So it's just like, you know, if you look at diversity, you you have 50 names in a portfolio and you think you're diverse, but they're all retailers. Yeah. It's not really, there's no real, Mm. it's all correlated, no real diversity. Same thing when you think about an investment process. If we all look the same around a table, is there really, you know, does that collaboration really mean anything? Or Mm. does it mean as much if people are coming from very different backgrounds?
0: Mm. That's hard to deliver, isn't it? Because people do like to, they they have a type of they know what good looks like, and that's the, and their HR people understand what they think good looks like, and therefore they hire in that image. Yeah, it's,
1: it is very difficult, very, very challenging, uh, we've you know we've gotten better at it through time, and you know we've taken a real yeah I think if you are goal orientated about that, and so you can kind of self recognize some of the limitations, you get better. Yes, um, we're certainly not perfect. I can't compare us to other firms; I have no idea. Mm. Um, but I think our you know if you look at our investment committee. Uh, If you look at our teams, uh, three of our four businesses, I think, are run by senior women. Um, Probably unusual um, in the industry, I don't know. Um, You know, we're not perfect, got a long way to go. It's hard. I like hanging out from people from the west coast of the U.S., We've got a lot in common, (laughs) same language. Um, But you know, I recognize, you know, that
0: we're more effective professionally um, by challenging ourselves. Um, There's quite a few things I want to come back to you on. so uh, we we're talking about uh, things going wrong. Yeah. Uh, you make decisions slowly. Therefore, you've uh, dodged, you know, your default rate is low. But what about when things are going wrong? Hmm. What, what do you do then? Do you have to live with it or do you have a process to manage things?
1: Well, in our core business, so we marry positions, right? So it's very inefficient. If we're... You know, the distressed positions or special situations positions that we're invested in are middle market loan originations, our real estate financings. You know, these are fundamentally illiquid assets. Good markets, you could probably sell them. But when things are going against you, very, very expensive to sell. So you get married to them. It's like choosing a spouse. And, you know, the most in a credit portfolio, and ours is fundamentally a credit portfolio, you know, your your winners are kind of irrelevant. Um, What's really important, you know, is are your losers and how you manage. Um, So, you know, a couple of things around Haven that I think are really important um, is, and, you know, one is the strategy that we talked about. But a second is how we're set up to deal with losers, defaults, things that go wrong, mistakes, you know, road bumps. And one of the great challenges in the direct lending business, the middle market lending business, the vanilla business, is how do you deal with workouts, because it's a different skill set. It's the most expensive human capital in our business. It's the most expensive human capital because those same humans you can use in a distressed business, much higher returning, much higher fee paying. So market value for those professionals, generally speaking, is higher. So in a middle market lending business where you need, um, you know, in good times, very little, and in bad times, a lot, how, well, what do you do? Hmm. So if you're at an investment bank, you know, or a huge asset manager, you can probably deal with it. But as a startup, how, how do you deal with that?
0: Mm.
1: And so one of the insights that we had 10 years ago <clears throat> um, and one of the reasons we started really in the distress business and we said to ourselves, we're going to build a big distressed and special situations business and then use that human capital and franchise and track record to extend into middle market lending and really go after this Basel two II and three opportunity. And we're going to do it with the same team. So we don't have, you know, it's the same humans that populate both strategies. And that meant we could have, you know, this very big workout resource um, that's in the same comp pool as our middle market lending resource. Which, by the way, is very important um, in my experience. Um, if somebody's not in your comp pool, yeah. you know, when I was at, yeah. I love Goldman, but when I was at Goldman yeah. and there's, you know, some person I need experience from, they, take a phone call. Have a meeting, have a coffee, give me some advice, but they're not coming in on Sunday afternoon <laughs> and <Right. laughs> working a thirty-six hour shift to help me out. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's important that financial incentives are aligned. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think the most important thing for Hafen is that we have that resource, and then we have a process called special measures. We scrub the portfolio, you know, on every reporting day looking for trouble. When something looks like it's going off plan, might might course correct. We put it in a special. We well, put it in something called special measures. Which is our most senior people around the firm, our most senior workout professionals, plus the deal team, you know, trying to anticipate, you know, different scenarios so that we're ready, we're active, we're on top of it, and we're proactive rather than
0: reactive. Right. You must have decided that the skills are fundamentally therefore transferable, even though in the past they've been different types of teams or people work doing direct lending versus workouts. Yeah,
1: been, it's been yeah. So people are typically more siloed um you know the under some some of the underlying skill sets are a little bit different um you know nothing's that complicated it can be trained it can be learned right. um you know if you have a you know if you have a seat at Haven where you're covering financial sponsors yeah. you know by definition you're doing more middle market lending you know than you are um special sits probably but you know the real overlap comes in our asset back business so if we look at our middle market lending fund you know for most of our competitors you know, 90, 100% of their portfolios would be buyout financings. At Hayfen, it's 40 or 50%. And the other 40 or 50% are kind of non-sponsor situations where we're financing assets, not companies. And all of those deals come from our specialist teams, most of which have a distressed background. So today it would be oil and gas, shipping, other forms of real assets, real estate, um, you know, healthcare, you know, et cetera. So, you know, those sector teams are really balanced between the two funds,
0: right? Right. This makes sense. Yeah. So it comes together quite nicely in that sense. Your yeah. focus on assets, your ability to bring together. Correct. Teams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, one, one of the other things I want to come back to you on was um, so you spoke about um, a consensual way of making yeah. decisions. Yeah. But at, at a senior level, which is you know that's 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 all good and proper. Is th- what to what extent is there collaboration at at a lower level? between teams and functions and geographies or or is that not necessary it's very necessary and it's
1: very high it's very high i was worried about it you know we we spent a lot of time you know trying to set up a culture you know that would among other things promote collaboration and we set up a lot of time you know on scorecards and reviews and how we communicate <clears throat> making sure that we reward collaboration and disreward if that's a if that's a that's a word non collaboration it's a bit worried actually because we you know we're i think hundred and thirty professionals, a lot of offices, probably hundred and seventy. I don't know how many total staff, but it you know it's, it's become a big firm, and so is that culture still strong? Is it still alive and well um you know, in the London office it's pretty easy for me to keep an eye on in Tel Aviv or New York, you know less clear, so we you know hired a consultant this year among other things, help us look at that, and I think. Uh, one of the things that's coming back is it's very strong and people really value it and appreciate it. And our reward structures, our comp pools, it's not eat what you kill. It's a relatively flat compensation compensation structure where, you know, collaboration um, is rewarded and, and, and encouraged. And it's actually super critical because, you know, this thing that we talked about around a fluid mandate, Yeah. Um, often the best value in markets, not just in my market, are in those gaps between silos so where other firms are siloed or even sometimes where we're a bit siloed so it's not mm. that person's pieced not that person's pieced that's where the real value is mm. and the only way to spot that is to really collaborate you know have the seals of businesses so tight actually they probably overlap mm. um, and it's really really it's really it's critical to us and I think it I think it works well
0: yeah they say in the sciences I've heard this anyway that innovation often happens in the intersection between disciplines because everyone's yeah. thinking about their own thing and then they come together and there's a light bulb. Yeah.
1: I think that's very I think yeah I th- that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't heard that but it's certainly true in financial markets. Mm. And it makes sense to me then in, in in science as well. So, you know, we try to reward that. I'll give you a really simple example. Um, you know, we have a you know, a, a big office here in London trading for environment, you know, to promote communication but teams tend to sit next to one another so the other thing we have is we have a huge lunchroom with you know a very very long kind of picnic style benches Mm. where you know we don't actually on Fridays we all eat together but you know when you when I try to not overtly but um Mm. covertly encourage people to have lunch together you know and sit and what a lot of times what I see is you see people you know in different teams you know, all working and communicating. Maybe they're talking about the cricket or football or whatever. But, you know, I think that, you know, setting up office environments to kind of promote that kind of idea, you know, is a is a subtle but important part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to come back to you on something else as well. Uh, did you say, like, 50% of your investments are non-sponsored? What have you got against private equity?
1: Um, I love private equity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so 50% of our investments in the middle market lending business. So our two big businesses yeah. are um, you know, special situations and distressed. It's one big fund. Yeah. The other one is this middle market lending fund. And within middle market lending, um, you know, this fund will be about 50%, I suspect. Right. Um, nothing, uh, nothing against sponsors. And, actu- um, and actually, everything else being equal, we'd rather do a sponsor deal. Because mm-hmm. it's more profitable for the GP. It's easier. Right. Analyzing a widget maker can be easier. It's less expensive to underwrite and originate than than trying to originate non-sponsor business. Mm. Um, Disclosure is better. Risk of fraud is lower. So the resource resource per unit of sponsor deal for a GP like mine is, um, you know, it, it's more efficient. But the problem, you know, can be, you know, if you look at it from a risk return perspective. And we're focused on that, you know, the sponsor market, like any other market, capital market, you know, can be a lender's market or a borrower's market or in between, and we want to be want to be balanced. So why, you know, ten years ago, ninety five percent of our portfolio was sponsor market, and we used our industry teams, you know, to focus on more lucrative business, hmm. you know. But if the mission is risk constant risk adjusted return to our client base, um, you know, that means that as that market over overheats. And I'd say on average, the buyout financing market today is below average risk adjusted return. Still some good deals. Um, You know, if the economy kicks on and continues to kick on, you know, most, you know, vast majority of those will be perfectly sensible. But if you look at from a risk perspective, you know, if earnings don't come through, there'll be some, you know, capital impairment in places there. So probably below average risk adjusted return. What we're observing, you know, for, but everybody thinks it's super safe which mm. is usually the paradox, mm. you know, shipping on the other hand, everything's is super dangerous. And then it, to an extent it is, you know, it's an opaque market. There's lots of good ways to lose money. <laughs> it's very volatile. So in your portfolio, you know, it's moving around a lot more than a widget maker typically, but mm. you know, we're financing, you know, container vessels today below scrap value.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So below the value, we can arrest the vessel, sail it to Bangladesh run it aground and turn it into scrap metal. We don't get paid six, seven hundred over for those kinds of loans, so we're not making a fortune. But risk-adjusted return is actually more attractive yeah. than a lot of you know, what we see in the easier buyout space. So if the mission is risk-adjusted return, that's the path that leads you down.
0: I guess for investors as well, you become much less correlated to the general cash flow, private equity, market, when you're doing that kind of stuff.
1: I think that's right. But that's, you know, that's not, it's a hard, still a hard sell for us today, sure. like going into an LP meeting and saying, guess <laughs> yeah. what guys we're going to do 20%, 50% of funds can be in shipping. It's, yeah. it's just a, it's just not a pleasant conversation. Um, because, but that's often, you know, the case in life, you know, th- he, I, I remember actually the now CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, who, um, you know, I haven't talked to you in a long time. But I remember he told me something um mid two thousands that has stuck with me for a long time. Actually it was around the telecom bubble in O one, oh two. I remember him saying it's never as good as you think it is, markets or spaces. Equally it's never as bad as you think it is. Which means that when something's going gangbusters and it feels really good because every month's numbers are coming in positive and things are going up and it seems like it's not that risky. Truth is, you know probably a lot more risk there than you realize equally when everything's going down every number this month is lower than last month and you know you're you're projecting that you know to zero yeah yeah the truth is it's probably a buying opportunity yeah it's kind of the message i think that's a great well i've taken it to heart i think it's it's
0: yeah markets overshoot on both sides exactly exactly that's the concept yeah Yeah. and 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 so like everything else then it sounds like you're in your direct lending business the proportion of sponsored and non-sponsored is a tactical rather than strategic. Yeah, it's judgment.
1: just yeah, I- exactly. Yeah. We it's more profitable to do sponsor business.
0: By the way, we'd have a bigger fund size.
1: Right. You know, like w- another part of our culture by the way. Hmm. To come back to this. And again, it's easy to say, it's hard to do. Clients first. C- by clients I mean the people who give us money. Right. The firefighters, the teachers, you know, whatever. Mo- right. 90% of our clients are public and corporate pension plans. Let's put their interests first. And that's not because we're altruistic necessarily. But if our goal is where Hafen is in 20 or 30 years' time, not what our P&L is next month, hmm. then it's obvious. If you look after clients hmm. and do the right thing by clients, Hafen will be, have higher growth through time, will be better off through time. So one of the things that that means in the current environment, where it's very easy, perversely, because the market's quite risky, today but it's very easy to raise money
0: Mm.
1: you know we've had to had some we've had to have real discipline around our fund size and it's controversial internally you know the current fund that we're closing you know is very much oversubscribed and there's a real view legitimate view that we should take the money Mm. because in a different environment it'll be hard to raise money and we can actually put it to work in a different environment Mm -hmm. but You know, we haven't wanted to do that because we've wanted to say to ourselves, if this condition persists for another years because of quantitative easing or whatever, so if we're not going into recession, we're not going, you know, into a downturn, then it's going to continue to be hard and difficult and expensive for us to originate. So let's make sure that we have fund size that's small enough that we can build a sensible portfolio, even in a poor investment environment. So there's a real financial cost. Yeah. You know, to this client's first mentality, mm. near term, long term, there's a financial benefit. Cool. So, cool. yeah, the shift to non-sponsors mm. is against our own near-term economic interest, right? Yeah, because uh, we'd be bigger and more profitable. Yeah. But it's in our long-term interest of trying to build, you know, the best platform we can through time.
0: And in terms of that long-term growth of of Hayfin, uh you know. To put it simply how big can you be and how would you get there would you have to introduce new lines and new strategies
1: yeah well so fundamentally you know our our, our private credit business today uh you know is at, is at capacity we're at, it's a very people intensive business so we're five and a half billion euros in in middle market lending um you know, two and a half billion euros in special sits that that's our that's our capacity that's the- in ima- an, an expensive market that's kind of you know what we can handle, um, and that those sizes will grow with the market and with our headcount, both of which are pretty slow. You know, as business people, uh, we want to continue to grow the firm. We want to continue to grow the firm because, actually, as a business, you know, HAFEN is you know overly reliant on our special, particularly our special situations business, but also our middle market lending business. So. We need a diversity of, you know, kind of less correlated, non-correlated mm-hmm. revenue streams you know, if we really yeah. want to endure. We've been building for the past four years, five years, part of the plan 10 years ago, our high yield and loans and, and structured credit businesses, you referenced that. Um, are they mainly US-based or are they? I 50-50, yeah. uh, half okay. the team in Europe, half the team in the US. Right. That's a product, so our, middle, our private credit business, we think of ourselves as a European specialist, We have two businesses, you know, oil and gas is somehow, you know, a bit global, shipping a bit global, healthcare a bit transatlantic, but fundamentally European businesses, loan, traded loans, traded securities, our view, you know, is the best client proposition is transatlantic. So because markets shift and move, and I think if I were putting high yield money to work, Mm -hmm. I'd want to put it with a manager who could move between markets pretty nimbly because you can trade in and out. So that's what we're trying to build. We're, you know, we're four years in. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we've got a long way to go. I think we're four billion euros or something, yeah. something like that, business. But that could be a forty billion euro business for us, you know, through time, and you know that that's a big, big focus of the firm.
0: And you built that partly through acquisition, I believe. In, in
1: the yeah, the organic business, the European business was organic, yeah. and in the U.S., we bought a CLO manager called Kingsland.
0: Right. Yeah. Great so generally speaking how how would you how how would you characterize today's market and how do you feel about the near and medium term prospects of credit lend, you know, of lending
1: hmm. well different yeah I think today's market's expensive in a word yeah. yeah it's um you know it's like in some of our businesses, it's like picking up pennies on the freeway <laughs> they're there you can get flattened by a truck if you're not careful <laughs> um so you know I think stock picking you know, is it, hard today. Uh, really, the way that we think about our vanilla business, it's all about, it's not really about the coupon we have. It's, does this, will this recover principal, in a recession? And do we have a path to enforcement in the docs? That's how we underwrite. Um, and if you look at it that way, you know, I think with our current fund size, you know, in the sponsor side, it's below average. We can just about get it to work. In the non-sponsor side, actually, it's a lender's market. shipping's a lender's market today. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas asset financing—it's a lender's market. Some of the real estate stuff, you know, that we're we've, we've been doing, uh, is a lender's market. So you know, a bit more in our favor on balance. Yeah, pretty difficult. Hmm. Um, you know, the special sits business, which just like our middle market business, um, you know, has a very broad mandate. You know, so ten years ago it was all corporate stress and distress. That's pretty much gone away the past five years. You know, if you're a stressed or distressed corporate today, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're trading at 80 cents today, you probably it's probably a zero, <laughs> you know, because it's so much money chasing those opportunities. You know, so, you know, I think our book today you know, is five or six percent corporate stress and distress in our special sits book. It's oil and gas assets um, in the North Sea. It's real estate NPLs. Yeah, it's healthcare IP. Um, it's shipping. Um, and those markets actually, I think, are actually, they're pretty interesting. Just very expensive to manage as a GP, but pretty interesting from a investor perspective.
0: What about the private credit space as an asset class? So you're clearly differentiated, but the way that obviously investors look at things is in buckets. Yeah. And uh, what, what's your view on the prospects of that? Because you uh, presumably would be affected if the aggregate return falls. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's two things. What
1: private credit is an asset class, okay? Uh, really is driven by, in my opinion, two things. One is regulation, and the second is rates, okay? So you know, under Basel two and three and salt, you know, if you look at the impact of all of that regulation, it's to rebalance. It rebalances lending, like it, it it diminishes slightly. I don't want to overstate it, you know, but it, it diminishes slightly the capacity on an economic basis for banks to participate in these markets, some of these markets, because of capital intensity, which reprices it you know, to levels that become attractive to pension funds and insurance companies. Yeah. So that's by far the biggest driver mm. of private credit in my business. But just like airlines, you know, c- credit is cyclical, right? It's, you know, it's a commodity. It's just money. <laughs> yeah. so it's very cyclical. And when we go through a downturn, you know, you know, I think baby will go out with the bathwater. Private credit, you know, be a lot of people looking at some of these middle market funds thinking, what on earth did we do? Mm-hmm. Portfolio defaults will increase, including at HAFEN. It's part of lending. Defaults actually don't matter. Like defaults, early warning signs, defaults, going into special measures, it matters from a resource allocation perspective to the GP. But, you know, in terms of IRR in return that's not you know the risk factor the question is you know do you have the did you pick a credit that will recover par do you have a document that will allow you and do you have the team that can go fight with a sponsor or a family or whoever Mm -hmm. you know you're fighting against in whatever court you're in and get your money back but that that's a that's a one two year process so there'll be a period of time in these middle market lending businesses where every portfolio you know has a, a spike in defaults including ours even the best lenders, including the banks. And it'll take you know, a year or two or three years of hindsight you know, to figure out, okay, you know, who were the better lenders and who were the worst lenders, and there'll be a shakeout. But during that two to three year period, yeah, it'll be a hard time to be in the industry. Yeah. Just like today. Last few years, it hasn't been pleasant to be in the ship owning business or the oil and gas business. doesn't mean those businesses are going away, um, you know, but they're cyclical. So my lot in life, as I chose to be in a cyclical business. <laughs> so, you know, it's a bit like being off peace. Let's not pretend that we're not in one. It's a cyclical business. We've got to do the best we can. The worst thing we could do is pretend that we're not in a cyclical business um, and manage our business that way because that's a recipe to, you know, blow up probably in considerable scale.
0: And tomorrow you're going to climb up Kilimanjaro, I understand. Yes, you I'm like terrible. going up and down and extremes. Uh, and <laughs> oh, my
1: first time. I'm not, you know, I'm 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 pretty much a sea level person, <laughs> so I'm not sure I've ever been. I don't ski um, or anymore, anyway. Um, so I'm a little. Yeah, I'm going with um, some school friends. Yeah. And uh, equal parts excited and and anxious about it. By the way, I have like two thousand dollars worth of kit. You know, that you have to buy for all oh, these yeah. things, which I'm afraid is never never going to
0: use again. So it's also. You know, it's also been, I'm sure there's a very strong secondary market for that. I hope so. I certainly hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Ross. I appreciate it. Nice conversation. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website, fund shack.com, for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.